Good morning, everyone. All right, it's 11.01. Just letting you know. I'll try to be quick today. I'm moving a little slow. If I seem sedated, I'm not. I'm just tired. Um, but uh, just a little praise, kind of praise report. What a great week. So we did our first, in the Warwick mission space, we did our first initiative, kind of mission initiative for children. And so we did an art camp, a three-day art camp for kids uh, 6 to 12. It was kind of fun because I was like way behind with promotion. I really hadn't done anything. And so we promoted it one day, one single post on Facebook. And within 24 hours, there were 40 kids uh, signed up for this thing. And so it was really cool that promotion went easy uh, by the mercy of God, I think. And these kids were just sweet, all from, a lot of them from the, most of them from Warwick Neck Elementary School and the different areas surrounding. And so we spent uh, three days with these kids, got to know a lot of parents, and it was just, it was just a wonderful time. On Saturday, it all culminated with uh, basically putting together an art show of all of their work. So they didn't go home with their work. They kept the work in the space. And then we displayed it all and hung it from the ceilings and put the big paintings on the wall. And so they brought their parents and dads and their grandparents. And it was just a wonderful uh, gathering, a very joyful gathering. So thank you for praying. Thank you for those who volunteered. Uh, like Shana and uh, Hadassah, Catherine, my daughter, Taylor, and Allie were the primary teachers each day. Molly and Reed, it was nice to have Molly and Reed there as school teachers, bringing order at times. Even Hadassah with her uh, Girl Scout experience, uh, thank you for that. And then Roger and Jackie helped me in the kitchen, which we, we learned one thing, kids can eat, yes. right? That's, we, we learned that. Wait, you know, you, I kind of realized, like, in, in public school, when you, uh, you know, when you get your lunch, that's pretty much it. I don't know if they ever call for seconds. Maybe they do sometimes. But we, I don't know, we just didn't really think this through. So we let the kids come for seconds. The first day we did tacos. We're like, anybody want seconds? I thought, like, two or three kids would come up. They all came back up. <laughs> and then they ate really fast and then came up a third time and came up a fourth time. And then there was like, became like a boasting thing, like, I ate seven tacos, you know? <laughs> okay, can you not say that to your mom? I ate five Twinkies. Like, just let's keep that between us, all right? <laughs> but um, they're, they're just so, the kids really grow on you quick, don't they? So, so sweet. So thank you for, for praying. Thank you for everybody who volunteered. It was a great success. All right, so for those who are brand new with us, we are in the book of Acts, and we're kind of almost done, really. We're at chapter 24 out of 28 chapters, and we're doing about a chapter a week, um, and so today we're going to look at this kind of strange chapter 24. I had to read this several times and, and kept asking God, like, well, I don't, what do you want me to say out of this? There's nothing, there's nothing happening here. It's kind of a boring chapter. But it started to open up a bit. So the title of my message today is called Hidden Away. Hidden Away. Now for those who have been following Jesus for many years, you understand that God works in seasons, doesn't he? 
It's a little like the New England seasons, the weather seasons. And I'm not just talking about the four seasons, but there are seasons within seasons, right? There's like two or three sweltering hot weeks in the summer or maybe, uh, you know, a week of just blasting cold in, the, in February. Yesterday was beautiful, right? Sunny, 75 degrees. But you fast forward maybe 150 days from now, and it could be, it could be five degrees, and terrible. All right. <laughs> and some days are better than others, right? You know, some seasons are really this is like the best weather ever, and then other seasons, when we hit February, especially, you're like, when is this season gonna end? You can't wait because it gets dark at like four o'clock and. You know how it goes. Not yet. Let's enjoy the fall, okay? But just like New England weather seasons change, the spiritual seasons in our lives change dramatically over time. We don't really have names for the spiritual seasons, but I just tried to come up with some, some name ideas for the different seasons. Like the, this is everybody's favorite, the joyful season. When like everything is fun. This is like when you first become a follower of Jesus. If you came to Christ like as a young adult or something, it's like every day is, is a gift from God. You're just so happy about everything. Then there's the sorrowful season. Usually when you've lost something, maybe a loved one or just something tragic or really difficult happened. There's the rapid growth season when there, you just seem to get into a, a, a traction in your walk with God, and, and you just seem to be growing so fast. I love those too. Uh, this one's not so fun. The wine press season, when life is just crushing you like grapes in a wine press. The abundant fruit season, when it seems like everything you do, everything that happens, it just works. Everything seems to be working. You have a conversation with somebody. You sit on a plane, on an airplane, and you, you, you get to share the gospel with the person next to you. And they're just like totally open, like the Lord's opening their heart. I wish every season was the abundant fruit season. This is a bad one. The wandering season, when you just get off track, you know, like the people of... Uh, people of God for 40 years in the wilderness, um, just kind of, where, how did I get here? We just kind of drift and get into a place of dullness. Then there's the weeping season. This is actually, sounds bad, but it's actually good and, and productive. It's when, for whatever reason, I don't know if we could handle this like all the time, but for whatever reason, we are just overwhelmed with emotion over the lostness of people, over people around us that we love that aren't ready to stand before God and the tears just flow. Then there's the busy season where we are so ridiculously busy, we don't even have time to think or to reflect on our lives. I don't really like those seasons. They're kind of fun for a while. You feel like, I'm getting a lot done, but then you're like, what, what, why am I even doing all this? What's happening? You just need to slow down. The mundane task season, everybody's favorite. This is my personal favorite, the encountering God season. Boy, I wish you could just schedule these, you know? 
Like, you know what? Next month's going to be a whole 30 days of encountering God. That's what I'm just going to plan it. Just put it on the calendar. But, you know, God sets these seasons, and I love the encountering God seasons when you're really not doing anything differently. You know, you're still praying, you're still doing the things, doing, being faithful, but for whatever reason, God just says, you know what, this is the month I am going to just pour out my spirit upon you and I am going to show you things that you can't even imagine. Um, So fun. And many other seasons I could probably keep going and so could you, I'm sure. But what Acts 24 is all about is what we could call the hidden away season. It's when circumstances beyond your control seem to isolate you from people. You're taken out of your normal spheres of influence and out of the public eye, and you are put in a small, confined space, metaphorically or literally, with almost no one noticing your life except for God. It might be because you were in prison for the gospel, probably not, at least here in America. But it could be because you are just working a lot and you have to work a lot alone. Or you are caring for an infant all day, every day. Or caring for a sick parent. Or that you're just shut away because of health issues or debilitating anxiety or depression, things like that. Or socially isolated because you just moved to the area for whatever Reason It can happen when someone loses a spouse and that spouse was the more social person. You know, the spouse left behind kind of can fall into that place of isolation and hiddenness. So the season of feeling hidden away, it can be hard. I think we've probably all at least tasted it. Some of you have been, are in it now. Some of you have experienced it for long seasons, long periods. The tendency is to feel useless or worthless, even to feel guilty, like I must be doing something wrong. And it's very tempting to push outside of God's will during these times and try to find relief. And this hidden away season is exactly where Paul finds himself at the end of chapter 24. Now, to give a little perspective, you have to realize that Paul, this is not Paul's normal way of living his life, okay? He was very public. Everybody kind of knew Paul. He was very fruitful. He was essentially a missionary evangelist. He went from city to city, town to town, visiting churches to strengthen the churches, speaking before large crowds. I mean, think about the contrast, for example, of Paul's ministry for two years in Ephesus, renting out the hall of Tyrannus, which was kind of a public, almost like a, I don't know, like a Columbus theater or just some kind of public space. And people from the city knew Paul. And many, there was so much fruit. People were coming to faith constantly. That's what Paul was kind of used to. But Acts 24 highlights a very different season of Paul's life. Some of the questions I came up with that I was asking personally were these. Why does God hide us away sometimes? Like, why does he do that? Why would God put a pause for two years on a ministry 
that was so fruitful. It doesn't seem like a good idea. Why does God have us share the gospel extensively with people who have ulterior motives and actually don't end up following Jesus in the end? It's confusing, right? Well, to give a little, little bit more context coming into chapter 24, and this is what we dealt with in preceding weeks, but Paul arrived in Jerusalem and caused such a stir that, uh, I mean, they dragged him out of the temple. Uh, the Jews wanted to kill him. He was arrested. He was beaten. Rome, who had oversight at the time of the Jewish nation, protected Paul, I think, four different times from the mobs who wanted to tear Paul to pieces. And so Paul is brought to Caesarea in the palace of King Herod for safekeeping. And it's kind of a prison. Actually, verse 27 says it's a prison. But he was treated well and he was given some freedom. It was more of a protective custody. We were in Israel. I think I mentioned that um, last time. But we were in Israel and in this very location where you could see the remains of Herod's palace and even uh, where they say Paul spent time in prison. And it's actually beautiful there on the Mediterranean Sea and you can hear the waves crashing. So God put Paul in a beautiful place, but it was an isolated place away from his church family. So let's run through the story. I'll make some comments along the way. Verse one, after five days, the high priest Ananias, remember him? He's the guy that ordered Paul to be slapped in the face in chapter 23. So Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, a guy named Tertullus. And they laid before the governor, Governor Felix, their case against Paul. Acts 23 tells a story of Paul basically being escorted by several hundred Roman soldiers to this safe place to protect him from the Jewish leaders that wanted to kill him. Now the high priest, Ananias, this guy is just out for Paul. This is the guy that slapped, had Paul slapped. He just, he wasn't a good man. History books even talk about uh, his evilness. But now at this point, Ananias brings some elders and this guy, Tertullus, to convince the Roman governor, Felix, that Paul's guilty and should be charged. So Tertullus is kind of a guy who's smooth talking. I picture him articulate, intelligent, maybe well-dressed, maybe smiling as he talks, just a charmer, winsome. I mean, this is, this is the guy who's going to go and he's going to persuade Felix, that Paul is guilty. Many of Satan's instruments could be described just that way. So let's hear his smooth flattery. Verse 2. When he, had, when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, and this kind of makes you just want to throw up his whole, his whole thing here. Since, he's just so dripping with flattery. Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, 
reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. It's ridiculous. Like, come on. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man. Now he really shows his true colors here. We found this man, Paul, a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. But, it's almost like he's saying, we did you a favor here, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews who were there accompanying Ananias and Tertullus uh, joined in the charge affirming that all these things were true. So Tertullus, he's not angry. He's kind of speaking these things calm. His opening words are filled with flattery, and he's trying to basically persuade Felix. Just a thought about flattery. It's a powerful thing, isn't it? Have you ever used flattery? How many have used flattery in your life? I'm waiting. Some of you, I'll just, maybe you got a shoulder injury. You can't <laughs> lift you. We kind of do it naturally, but it's, it's actually kind of a powerful thing. When someone showers us with praise, even if we kind of know it's flattery, it skews our judgment. It makes us want to believe that everything the person says is true because we want to believe that all the nice things they said about us are actually true and that this person is credible. But notice how biting this man's words become, like a nasty little first-grade tattletale liar. He resorts to name-calling. He calls Paul a plague, a riot-stirrer, a ringleader, a temple-trasher. It's like, just calm down. But now it's Paul's turn. Watch the contrast here. Note how, note how Paul uses the right amount of respect for the governor without employing flattery. Uh, and, and maybe Paul was kind of wisely highlighting how ridiculous Tertullus sounded with his flattery. He might have had that in mind. Verse 10, this is Paul. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. That's it. That was the extent, the extent of his, it really wasn't flattery. It was just honor. One sentence, honoring Felix by saying that he's been such a good judge for many years over the nation that Paul says, you know, in so many words, he's actually excited to present his defense. Paul was saying, I have confidence in you, Governor Felix, that you'll judge this case fairly. And it gives me joy because I know I'm innocent. That's kind of what, in so many words, he was saying. And Paul gives his defense. He says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to, to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now bringing up against me. But 
This I do confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, and this is all true, by the way, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. I mean, this was a perfect defense if you studied it. And he doesn't just, he's not a, you know, he doesn't just admit guilt. He doesn't just stand there and say nothing. I like that Paul uses his mind and he, he defends himself in this situation. And he was truthful to the core. Now, let's see how Felix, the governor, responds. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. That was kind. So we have to commend Felix here for a moment. Despite a great effort on the part of the Jews to flatter and persuade him, he doesn't budge, right? He just, he's firm. It actually says he put them off. This was a man who seemed to take justice seriously. I love that he not only protects Paul, but gives Paul some liberty in the palace. Uh, this probably meant something like a two-year meal train, right, with just friends coming every day maybe and just bringing food. We're not sure if the, the friends could come and, and interact with Paul. I don't think they, they could. We're not totally sure, but it seems like probably it was a prison. So probably um, they just dropped things off, books, uh, paper, pens, things like that that Paul needed. So that was a kindness that Felix gave to, to Paul. So he was in prison, but Felix was kind to him in prison. Now, verse 24 says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, actually, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus. And as he reasoned about three things, righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you, you know, in the future. Verse 26, at the same time, key phrase there, at the same time he was interested in the gospel, at the same time he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. There's the ulterior motive. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, 
and desire to do the Jews a favor, and Felix left Paul in prison. Now, I think Paul, I mean, I think Felix was a pretty decent ruler, relatively speaking. He seemed to handle Paul's case with justice. He wasn't swayed by flattery. He was merciful. He was kind toward Paul. Um, interestingly, Felix was married to a Jewish woman. Um, so reading in between the lines a little bit, I kind of imagine Felix and his wife having a lot of discussions about Paul. Like, why do the Jewish leaders want to kill Paul? Like, what's the deal with that? And I think there was some curiosity in Felix and in Felix's wife. The whole thing intrigued them enough to have this prisoner, Paul, come. I don't know if, like, maybe they had meals with Felix and his wife, but it's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, this is like a prisoner being taken out of the prison chamber frequently to have conversations with the ruler over the whole region and his wife. Paul is basically hanging out with the governor and his wife. Now, typical Paul, he holds nothing back, right? He talks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. I'm just going to touch on each of these uh, briefly just so we have an understanding of what he's talking about. To elaborate, I think probably when it says that he was talking about the righteousness of God or righteousness, probably things like that the Bible really teaches and the gospel teaches that none are righteous, right? That was the message. No one is good enough or just enough to qualify for acceptance, with the Lord God. And Paul likely told them something like this. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This may have been the part of the message of Paul that kind of alarmed Felix, right? Especially for people who are good morally, uh, compared to others, at least. This is the thing with the gospel. In view of God, we're all sinners. We're all filthy. Even our best works and our best righteousness is all filthy works, you know, before a holy God, because he's so holy. But compared to one another, you know, some people are just kind of more moral than other people. You know, some people don't break the speed limit. Some people just, I don't know, they're just kind of good people. They help people. They help their neighbors. They don't lie. They don't cheat on their taxes. Some people are just moral people. But the gospel says nobody's moral enough to qualify for heaven. So that for somebody, for somebody who's like a, a, a sinner and kind of loves their sin and is kind of worse than most people, that's an easy message yeah, I'm a sinner, like, duh. I'm definitely not qualified to inherit the kingdom of God. But for the good man or the good woman, it can be disturbing, right? It can be upsetting. It's unthinkable. It's actually really offensive to the moral person. And that could have been what caused uh, Felix to back away. You know, how can you say God wouldn't welcome a nice person like me into the heavenly dwelling? 
But he also says, the scripture says that Paul spoke of self-control. And what does that mean? This was a huge part of Paul's message, right? You know, right through the letters, Paul spoke about being sober, being vigilant, being uh, hateful towards sin, right? Resisting the devil, mortifying the flesh, putting to death the misdeeds of the body, offering your body as living sacrifices, right? It's, it's serious. Like Paul, there's no easy believism with Paul's message. Paul was always really clear that the Christian faith is not about just, oh, say this little sinner's prayer or, uh, you know, just accept Jesus into your heart and then you're all set. Now you, you know, you have the ticket to heaven. It's, it's a deeper thing. It's a change of lifestyle. It's actually a way. It was called the way. Being a Christian was called the way. It wasn't just something that you believe about. It was a way that you lived. And so that was probably part of the message of Paul as well. And then he also talked to Felix and his wife about the coming judgment. Now, Paul spoke of judgment to both believers and non-believers, didn't he? It was a frequent theme in his letters. He constantly appealed to something beyond this present life. And as humans, listen, it is natural for us to make decisions about things based on if it will enhance our life now. Think about that. And we are, I mean, as, as church, as churches, we are always trying to appeal to the felt needs of people right now. And it's, it's kind of, it doesn't work that well. But this is a human thing. You know, will this, you know, if I become a Christian, will this make me happy? Will this make me wealthy? Will this benefit my business? Will this promote me socially? And in the first century, listen, these motivations could not really, they were not effective at all if used by Christians, right? I mean, because the reality was that if you decide to follow Jesus and identify with Jesus, it means, it could mean, well, it would mean social suicide and it could mean imprisonment and it could mean beating and it could mean that you get dragged out of your house and separated from your family it could mean that you're going to end up in an arena with people screaming and cheering as you're devoured by, let's not get too graphic right now, but because I see some kids in the room. Um, but you know the things that happened in the first century with Nero, for example. So Paul's appeal was not like, oh, come to Jesus. It's going to make your life so wonderful. Yes, it does. We have the joy of God, the assurance, the peace of God. But there was this appeal to something further beyond this present world. Yes, following Jesus may get you killed, but it is the only way to have confidence on the day of judgment. And of course, he was just echoing what Jesus said, right? Jesus said, what would it profit a, a man if he gained the whole world like all of the pleasures, all the pleasures that Solomon, King Solomon had and, and more. If we gained everything we ever would want or dream in this one lifetime, what would it profit us if we gained everything and yet in the end lost our soul? So Paul preached judgment. And you get the idea that Felix maybe didn't know what he was getting into. <laughs> you know, he's... he's 
yeah, let's, this is so interesting. You know, maybe he was inquiring about the Christian faith. It just kind of seemed interesting. Paul seemed like a, uh, a, just a charismatic person, interesting character. And, and I think Felix was just a nice guy with maybe some natural interest in, in religion. But the message of Paul started to touch a nerve. Has that ever happened to you? Like maybe for those of you who have tried to share the gospel with someone and they seem really interested, right? They're like, oh, how'd you get into the, you know, they're asking you all these questions. And then you start to, to get, you know, closer to, to sharing the actual message. And it's like, whoa, okay, I don't want that. And you can, they just shut down, they close, they back away, they pull away. It can touch a nerve. What's interesting, though, is that Felix kept inviting Paul back, didn't he? Why? Well, it seemed like there was a couple different motives going on there, right? Felix maybe was genuinely interested, I guess, in the gospel. And it was, I mean, it was pricking his heart. It was affecting him in some way. But he was also hoping that he could get some money. I don't know why he thought Paul had money, but... Maybe because Paul had so much influence and knew so many people. But he wanted to, uh, you know, he was hoping that he would kind of squeeze Paul for some kind of sum of money in exchange for his favor. Sadly, we have no record of Felix becoming a follower of Jesus. Seems like Paul spent countless hours with this guy and he never gave his life to Christ. And many of us can relate to that, right? Some of us have spent years sharing the gospel with certain people. And they're probably further now than they were 10 years ago when you started sharing the gospel with them. It's heartbreaking. And this was the experience that Paul had. Now, as I end this message, I want to circle back to some of my opening thoughts and questions about seasons. So here, Paul spends two full years in Caesarea, basically witnessing to a guy who just wanted to get money from Paul. That seems like a waste, right? All of Paul's public ministry ceased. Think about this. He wasn't preaching in the open marketplaces. He wasn't healing people. He wasn't raising anybody from the dead. He wasn't visiting churches and ministering in power as he was kind of accustomed to. Paul was hidden away by God for two years, sharing the gospel over and over with a guy who secretly just wanted money from Paul. And again, I'm just the questions in my mind are like, why is God, what is happening here? Why does God hide us away sometimes? Why would God put a pause on Paul's fruitful ministry and put him in this place for two years? Why does God have him share the gospel with somebody who's not going to receive it over and over and over and over? There's a little verse in the book of Isaiah where God says, and some of the songs connected well with this this morning, my ways are not your ways. Have you heard that? We just don't always understand why God orchestrates things as he does. I mean, I have a lot of questions. Here's just a few of them. Uh, for example, why did, why did God let John the Baptist be killed? I mean, Jesus said he was the greatest man who ever lived. 
It seems like he would have been like an incredible force to advance the kingdom of God. The guy's beheaded at like 33 years old. Never gets to really follow and be a part of the church. Or why does God put such a seasoned man of God like John the Beloved, this is a different John, on the Isle of Patmos in isolation toward the end of his life? Why were so many Christians killed in their youth or in the prime of their life when they could have had many years of fruitful ministry? These things don't make sense to us. They're not logical, right? I'm, I'm pretty logical. I get it from my dad and he's just like, these are questions he would ask. Why, what was God thinking? Why, why did, and you know, at the end of the day, we don't really know a lot of the answers to these questions. But we do know that what God does in the secret places when he has us shut away in isolation, is for a good purpose. It is in the hidden away season that God purifies our motives. It's in the long season away from public ministry, away from people that God often teaches us things about himself. He kind of needs to slow us down to manifest his glory. And if I'm honest, and if you're honest, we don't, we really don't know a lot of things. And we don't always know why God does what God does. He's God, isn't he? And we are not. We are finite creatures. We've been here for a few decades. You know, we've learned a few things. Like, we're not going to figure out the mind of God on all matters. Now, he reveals things to us, but we, there's questions, there's a mystery. But we can fully trust that he has good reasons, and we can trust his character, and we can trust his timing. So if you find yourself, and I close with this, hidden away in a season of isolation or fruitlessness, know that the Lord has orchestrated this season for his purposes. Instead of focusing, like we often do, on wanting to get out of the season and get to, a, get to the joyful season, you know, get to the abundant fruit season, get to the fun parts of life. Instead of just wanting to get out of where you are, focus on being faithful within the season. You might feel like your season of being hidden away is a waste of time. It is never a waste of time. Nothing is wasted in God. Each season plays a role in shaping us. Each season is essential in the overall mark we leave in this world. So be patient, be faithful, and trust God always. Don't try to fight or try to uh, fly away from the confined place that God may have you in certain times, but relax in the sovereign plan of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, so much easier to say these things than do them. 
Lord, I pray for all of us that we would not try to jump out of the will of God and go run to some kind of comfortable thing or try to make a different season happen in our own strength. But Lord, I pray that we would just stay where you want us. I pray that we would trust in your sovereign plans, that we would be faithful in the midst of our seasons of isolation. Lord, we need you. We need you. Help us to trust you more. Help us to relax in your care. And Lord, I know you don't forbid us from asking questions. It's okay to ask questions. But I also pray that that would be tempered with with just a, a, a rest. Because we're never going to get all of our questions answered. And we will never exhaust all of our questions in this life. But Lord, be our Father. And may we just trust in you that you know what you're doing. You know what we need when we need it, need it for each season of our lives. Yes. And we pray this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Love you guys. Sorry if I wasn't as energetic as I usually am, but I'm so physically tired. Mainly I'm tired because of all the paint that was splattered all over the mission space, all over the tile floor, and just from being on my hands and knees scrubbing with one of those green scrubby sponges. Like every muscle in my body is sore. Um, so it was more, more that. The kids themselves didn't really wear me out. <laughs> Anyways, love you guys. Have a great day. Have a great week.